you guys hear me okay? Is that loud enough? So I'm going to be stepping in as facilitators, um, taking over from Phil, and Darren is going to introduce the next publication theme, which is the importance of the local. So just uh, make eye contact with me and we'll do the same staff procedure that we did for the last round of publications. Hello. Is this loud enough? Louder? That's good? Great. Um, excuse my reading if I do. So we had a couple questions that all related to Harvard's position in the community um, from which I kind of diverged into the global versus local dichotomy that we enter when we create networked um, institutions. So what does it mean, for example, for privatizing? What does it mean to privatize resources at an institution such as Harvard that occupy public space and receive privileges for their preserved service? Of, uh, for the society. So what does it mean, for example, to have a private library that the public cannot access? Um, especially when universities and other institutions such as libraries are exempt from their fiscal responsibilities to the locality and largely about law, really, in controlling uh, the land that they occupy. Um, what does it mean to basically afford them a bubble that gives them an immunity from the reality of the local community and society. Instead of the bubble, such institutions in the neoliberal framework operate on a global cultural network that basically forcibly transcends that geography. And as such, our increasingly network life does not only facilitate the dissemination of information, but also lends, to, lends a hand to power relationships to extend beyond their immediate reach. As an example, Harvard is a dominant force, not only in the United States academia, but has the privilege and power to affect academia globally through institutions which, like Harvard, are now operating about their localities. And then in that, local cultures become like accessories, bracelets, necklaces, wall hangings, and souvenirs, if you will, embellishing our academic discourse. Cultural institutions serve as a launching pad at times for economic hegemony to expand across global cultures. These cultural institutions further strengthen the neo-imperialism which is already operative via corporate media. Neoliberal globalization simultaneously assumes and asserts a universal normalcy. What is considered normal extends like a carpet. It suffocates those that refuse to move and covering over anything left behind and leaving them for future sites of cultural archaeology for the institutions. So again, relating to the questions, how do we decentralize these networks to unoccupy localities, to render them relevant and participants in the structures of knowledge, whether that is production or dissemination? So we're going to start staff and Hi, I'm Caitlin, and um, I guess going on the last discussion and also um, for, for this one, i try to summarize real quick. Um, I think this discussion is really interesting to be occurring in Boston, where I think there's something like 50 to 60 um, institutions of higher learning, and only two of those institutions, UMass Boston, um, is a public university where you can uh, get a four-year degree as well as mass art, but that's an art. So there are only two public institutions um, outside of uh, community colleges in this area. 
And um, speaking of pedigree, I think, within this discussion is extremely important because public, you know, as much as this might be a public event, um, pedigree is a, a barrier. And, um, and even having the, um, the desire to uh, reach that, that barrier itself, to, to feel like you have the right to be in, in a space like Harvard, um, and what kinds of alliances can, can we create um, um, within Occupy, within these uh, institutions of higher learning in this area to support working class intellectuals and the development of working class intellectuals. Because there's this tendency within a lot of these conversations to create a dividing line between in labor, um, if it's working class labor, and then there's intellectual labor. And I think that those lines are much more blurred and we need to support that as a community within this space of higher learning, um, especially with so many powerful privatized uh, intellectual spaces in this area. So if anyone wants to speak, um, raise your hand. We'll bring you the mic. Hi, my name is Ben Collins. I'm a student at the Kennedy School, um, and my question is less about the Boston area and more about a currency that's operating in Western Massachusetts called Berkshires. Um, it's been it was started by the Schumacher Society about ten years ago, and uh, it's been relatively successful. It has about I think around over a million dollars in circulation or in Berkshires in circulation, um, and it's only accepted by local businesses and has been pretty successful at stimulating uh, local economic transactions. So I'd be curious about uh, thoughts on what cities like Boston or people interested in local economies in Boston could learn from Berkshires and also what would be the next step for successful local currencies that have established themselves and might be um, foundations for uh, further innovations in how to structure economic exchange. Um, I'm very interested in the category of con continuing education um, and thinking about the way that that has been monetized um, in so many ways. I've been hearing on NPR this ad for, starts out, you know, Harvard University, um, accessible through the Harvard Extension School, um, classes available on campus and online for students all over the world. And so it's this kind of mixing of um, you know, the, just the language of accessibility um, and the mixing of the local and global and thinking about um, continuing education. Um, and then the sort of corollary to that is, you know, tying back into what you know, Joe was saying, was thinking about and, 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 and the um, independent scholar from Central Square is thinking about the ways in which continuing education and um, radical education opportunities, popularizing of theoretical ideas that are circulating in the academy um, is a project that I think many of us believe in and thinking about, so is there a counter movement um, to the corporatization, the monetization of continuing education? 
this time I'll keep it short. I actually just want to raise, in, as a, in a practical, concrete sense, what Julie was just talking about, which is that wouldn't it be great if the people in this room and other people who would like to be or ought to be in this room came together after and through this conference to initiate, say, free Boston University for the summer, uh, actually to take, you know, as a practical task, so it's something that's been raised theoretically about trying to make this more inclusive, taking it off campus and establishing uh, a, a network of, of free, uh, you know, educational projects in, in various forms, uh, from lecture series to, to dialogues to debates, and to take it into the communities. Uh, yet there is, many of us have the luxury of, uh, you know, of a, uh, a summer paid for. And what if we took that summer, those of us who do have that luxury, which is not everyone I understand as academics, and fully deployed it in, in this way? And I, I'd like to be a part of that if you would. There, there are a number of technological um, opportunities that have happened because of the internet. Um, nobody yet has talked about Khan Academy, right, which is free online education. Um, Howard Rheingold uh, out of Stanford has a new book coming out called Net Smart, and he's looking at communities of learning, distributed communities of learning, and the idea of Peeragogy, P-E-E-R-A-G-O-G-Y. So non-hierarchical learning within a learning community. There's the whole maker movement, and there are a number of uh, uh, maker sites here in the, in the Boston area, primarily Somerville. And uh, there are even some cities in, in Europe that are talking about Barcelona, for instance, reorganizing their economy around the idea of makers if people understand what makers are, fab labs and all of that, using computer design control and, and uh, printing on demand. The technology that we have available now allows us to decentralize and distribute around the world. What we've seen over the last year is an anti-globalization movement, but it's an anti-corporate globalization movement it's also a pro-person-to-person -person globalization movement, and that can be used for education. Good afternoon. My name is Beruz. Um, I'm an independent activist. I've been a member of the Lucy Parsons Center. You might have heard of it. It's an independent bookstore. We have been around for 40 years. I'm honored to be a member of it for the last 15 years. We sell David's book, of course. Uh, it's... Uh, it's it's an honor to have him here and be in this space. And, and I love the Occupy movement, of course. And I, I don't think, I just mentioned Lucy Parson because it's a local issue. So uh, what I, uh, my question is, as the lady over there, I don't know her name, why in the world universities don't pay taxes? I mean, especially you on Harvard, which have so much money. And those taxes could be used for many years. Why in the world they don't pay taxes? I don't know where. When was it established? Who, who made that law? I mean, everybody pays taxes. That's my basic, you know what I'm saying? I mean, of course, the big, big profession don't pay. I know that, what I meant, but by 99%, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> okay, that's it. Check us out, lucyparson.org, please, come on. We have three movies every Wednesday. 
Great. Actually, uh, following up on the notion of, of sort of the free university online and the fact that actually that's really that's really happening. And one of the things that's a little bit so it's a good thing. I mean, I like you know knowledge is becoming more free. That's great. But there's actually a bit of an arms race involved in that as well. You know, so MIT does does uh, open courseware puts all their curriculum online, and that was actually a huge prestige building move that made them you know even more visible worldwide because all of a sudden if you're trying to teach electrical engineering in India, you were probably going to use the MIT curriculum and the MIT textbook and the MIT approach to the whole pedagogical process. Then Stanford comes out with this online AI course, which is hugely successful. And Stanford comes out with this online AI course, which is hugely successful. All of a sudden, MIT has to turn around and react with MITx, and they're both competing for who can give away knowledge about technical topics faster and better because both of them believe that the there's a uh, there's going to be a monopoly on giving away knowledge. That there's an opportunity to build the the, the go-to brand, the the global brand for who gives away that information and who controls the way people think about those conversations. So that's really great if you're if you were had the problem you didn't have access to that knowledge. Um, but it's also potentially you know threatening if you know when when everything is being given away and when things are primarily being given away by very wealthy institutions that can afford to do so. It becomes a lot harder for new people to enter the conversation and to have the opportunity to participate in, in that. Even though it's really cheap to start, it's not free. Uh, my, my name is John Spritzler. I'm recently retired as a senior research scientist at the Harvard School of Public Health. As a, where I was a biostatistician involved in AIDS research, I would like to propose that that the the overriding need for academics is to, among their colleagues and the public, is to identify the fact that we live under a dictatorship of the rich. It's wrong. It it needs to be overthrown. We need to build a revolutionary movement, and that and that to identify the ways in which we are being used to serve the dictatorship of the rich, to make it clear to our colleagues and the public how that is the case and how it ought not to be. And I'll just give a little example. In the, in the, the big AIDS conference in Seattle a number of years ago, Bill Gates was the keynote speaker. I passed out leaflets identifying what I just said to be the case, calling on people to uh, oppose the, the uh, advocacy of inequality by its chief exponent at our scientific meeting. I was thrown out of the meeting. They took the badge away from me. I was there in a four-day conference at the beginning with no badge. I talked in the food court to all my colleagues. They organized. They demanded that I be readmitted. And and in the next day, within 24 hours, the woman who took away my badge and told me I'd never be readmitted handed me my badge back. It was celebratory. The one of the doctors said it was the best, most fun he's ever had since the 1960s. And we can do that. Let's remember that in 1969, Harvard was shut down to get rid of ROTC. Let's think big. I, I just wanted to add a few quick things. The reason they don't pay taxes is because they're nonprofits. Hospitals, the big churches don't pay taxes, not just Harvard. And a great resource, a man named David K. Johnston has written a book called Free Lunch, a book called Perfectly legal, that there's zillions of other tax outrages locally, nationally, and final word on that is 
I used to think that tax havens were just one of the many depredations of capitalism. I read a book recently called Treasure Islands, which talks about the fact that tax havens, through tax havens, half of all the financial transactions in the world pass through tax havens. They're a central institution of capitalism. So a lot of stuff to do with taxes that is important to look at. Um, my name is Nick, I'm a student at Bunker Hill. Uh, I just want to say I've heard a lot of people talking about uh, dispersing knowledge that was traditionally uh, held just in universities to the general public, and I just want to kind of challenge the assumption that um, that knowledge is necessarily useful uh, to the working class or that there's necessarily a demand for all that knowledge. Um, and also the idea that uh, uh, Academics might have more knowledge about radical movement organizing than 24-7 uh, uh, occupiers or activists. That's the to, to Catherine right in front of me. Um, just briefly, one of the things that interests me in the sort of global, local um, frame of this discussion is just the, is the immediacy of local things, um, which is really different from, um, I think, the one, I mean, when you think about sort of a sort of detached global that I think places like institutions like Harvard and other sort of large institutions are able to create, they're able to sort of create a sort of displaced, um, not immediate, not personal um, sort of version of um, interacting. Um, and so what's interesting to me about Occupy, a lot of it is that it, it forces an immediacy, like that localness being near people, forces questions that wouldn't normally be asked. But also that's interesting to me that, you know, you can create a space that is local that, that also doesn't do that, right? So I think a lot of the spaces that universities are like that. They don't actually force engagement um, and are sort of walled off. So those are just some random thoughts. So we have no one on track as far as I know. I just wanted to add to my remarks that I made earlier. Uh, I mentioned that I'm an engineer. Engineers for 300 years have been working at uh, producing labor-saving devices. Um, I want to announce to the group that we've succeeded. Uh, labor isn't needed anymore. Um, the term dark factories got introduced a, a couple of years ago to imply what happens when you slide in the last robot. You can then turn off the lights because there are no more workers. So all, the, all of the notions around getting the jobs back and the labor movement are, in my opinion, misplaced. The real question is, what are we going to do now that we have solved the labor problem? Uh, no, I think one thing when we think about locality is, is um, you know, the provocateur's analogy with neoliberalism uh, creating these kind of bubbles, and the bubbles are in communication of other similar bubbles internationally more than they are with people in their own community. Um, I mean, but it's analogous to all these gated communities. Um, I mean, this is a general pattern of neoliberalism, where you create this globalized elite in contact with each other. And there's all these different types of barriers and separation and levels of securitization surrounding them, keeping them apart from the communities, which nonetheless are economically based on providing them the things they want. Um, and it would be interesting to look at, at again, the idea of the sort of university hospital cities that we're uh, increasingly getting, how that's maintained. Because it sounds to me like what we've been talking about is 
different types of walls, either, you know, uh, that keep people out of places like Harvard, even when ostensibly they are a lot of access. One thing I think we could look at and think about is, is this level of people who are employed in what's called guard labor, um, which is a skyrocket over the last uh, 40, 50 years. More and more people who are employed, since they're not employed in factories, are, I mean, there's every place you go, you see security guards. I mean, this didn't used to exist. Um, I'm old enough, I remember, where you didn't see people in uniform, like, you know, sort of surveilling you everywhere you went. There's a million types and levels of, of cameras and securitization, um, which is actually how a lot of the working class is now employed. It's interesting to think about.